Welcome to the Becoming More Significant podcast. And this is all about helping you to become more visible, more credible, and ultimately more profitable by becoming more significant. And you have a smorgasbord of offerings to tap into. So over 50 wonderful podcast conversations with incredibly inspiring guests, each of whom are being truly significant in the world. And they're sharing wisdom and insights that helps them to continually have an ongoing impact in the world by being ever more significant. Then I have 10 Wisdom and Insights episodes where I have captured the golden nuggets from those conversations. And in each Wisdom and Insights episode, I share from either five or six episodes, the key learnings, the insights, and the practical actions that we can all take right now to become more significant in the world. And then my third offering is some snapshots of the learning that I have been doing over the last few years. I am a learning junkie. I'm constantly keyed into audiobooks, to podcasts, to TED Talks, to online courses, to mentoring. And I'm learning so much all the time that I'm sharing with my clients. And so I want to do that through the podcast platform as well. So I will be putting together very short, probably 15, 20 minute sessions on key learnings and again, key actions that can help us all to become more focused, tap into more of our potential and make a real and lasting difference in the world. So lots to choose from. And thank you so many of you for supporting the podcast over the last couple of years. It's been great to have you on board. And long may you continue to tap into the wisdom and gems of the Becoming More Significant podcast. Wherever you are today, I hope you're shining brightly. Have a great day. I am really excited today to have with me TJ Power, who is having a massive impact in the mental health and wellness space. And rather than me describing him and what he does and how he got there, I'm going to just ask him to um, introduce himself. So first of all, welcome, TJ. Thank you. Lovely to be here. And please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about your journey to where you are today. Definitely. So, yeah, my name is TJ and I work and love working in this world of mental health. And I basically spend my time teaching organizations this holistic mental health process that I have built over a number of years. And to kind of take you on a, a simple story through what's led me up to, to this point I'm now in, I basically went to university, down to Exeter University to study psychology and then chose to continue that into a master's. And I was really focusing my attention on psychology and health and neuroscience. Those are the areas I love and still find incredibly fascinating now. And I was fortunate during my master's year to actually become a, a lecturer down at Exeter University and began 
building these third year psychology modules and I was teaching about mindfulness and mental health and things like that and that then opened this door that I didn't really know was coming to speaking in this world of mental health and I was very fortunate to get some exciting opportunities speaking at Oxford University and out at Toronto University and then I suddenly found that that's what I like doing I like talking about mental health which was really exciting and I then decided COVID then hit as I was kind of completing my first series of uh, the lectures and decided I really wanted to come out of that academic structure and see if I could build some kind of innovative program for mental health, something that's really current, really what's happening right now in our world, how the tech is working, how COVID's affecting us, all of these different things. And initially last summer, I built this process to support young women navigating cancer, still an audience I work very closely with. But basically, after I saw that this program could have some impact, I began diversifying the audiences I was working with. So I started working with bigger corporate organizations, startups, younger people, that kind of thing. That's led me up to here. I spent a lot of time delivering this. And then I also work as the director of mental health at a company called White Calm, which is a, a virtual well-being platform. Wonderful. So I'd like to take you back and find out what was it that led you into the field of psychology and then neuroscience and mental health? Was it triggered by something in your childhood or, you know, what, what was that decision about? What was the process? Yeah, that's a good question. So in my early childhood, when I was really young, around five, six, seven years old, I experienced some quite early onset OCD in my mind and began kind of having some guidance. My mum carefully guided me to not necessarily think I was unusual, but I began understanding that I had slight OCD tendencies, basically, and then began studying my mind a bit more from quite a young age. And at that point, I found golf and golf became my life. My whole dream was winning Augusta and I set my vision for like seven years on being a golfer. And if you know golf, it's a pretty in your head sport. <laughs> it's a physical sport. Of course, you've got to hit a ball, but it's largely in your mind. So I became fascinated by how my mind worked, what made it go into difficulty, what made it feel better. And I then left golf as I went into teenage years. I got excited by the, the teenage things that can excite you at that age. And through to about 16, 17, 18, we had some real difficulty in my family with a, a lot of loss and a lot of challenges coming up. And I basically found that I had some kind of innate ability to guide people in my family and I'm the youngest of a, a very big family and found that for some reason my brain knew things to say to people and I never knew I had that and at that point I chose to study psychology at university because it was the thing I was most interested in and felt for the first time with really any subject I kind of understood it and yeah I went on to university began the psychology world and just fell in love with this conversation of what's going on in our heads. Wow. Brilliant story. And I, I love the connection to childhood and, and what leads us into the path that we choose. It's fascinating. So you became a lecturer while you were studying at university. How on earth did that happen? You must have been pretty young at that age, at that stage. Yeah, I was 22, I think. So I was very young to be, uh, to be lecturing. I 
had become very closely connected with those that were teaching the content. And I'd gone to a, I'd been in a mindfulness module in my year before in my third year of university and began working very closely with that lecturer who taught me that because mindfulness was like my big thing that I suddenly became really interested in and began moving me forward. And my relationship basically just grew with this team of people that were the lecturers and it created this opportunity for me to come on board and kind of build my own mindfulness module and begin teaching it in the second term of my master's just after Christmas. And how did your fellow students react to, you know, one of their fellow students teaching them, basically? Yeah, it was definitely an unusual dynamic. I had almost a bit of that kind of imposter syndrome Mm. concept of thinking, I'm also your age, like, why am I standing up here? But I tried, like I do with all of my speaking, to make it quite light and quite conversational and create humor in it and stuff like that. And I just created the best environment I could. And it seemed to go to plan. It was a a really good time. Did you have much kickback from anybody? Because there must have been a little bit of kind of jealousy, you know, why why is he better than me and why is he being chosen and all the rest of it? I didn't have too much. The thing is, because I was lecturing, I was in my master's year, but I was lecturing the third year students. And when you're at university like even though it's just one year you don't really know that group of people because you've Mm. just been in your lectures so yeah yeah, it was it was a new set of people for me to begin working with and if anything I think they quite enjoyed the young take on lecturing because it was quite a different way in which maybe a more senior lecturer would teach Mm. and so you'd studied mindfulness but you pulled together your own module how did that differ from the module that you'd been instructed in yeah, so I became fascinated by it. And like any topic, just like you were, you were mentioning that nature video earlier, I love finding things that people are interested in, but then just really trying to create my whole own perspective of it. And that was just a process of spending a lot of time in that master's year in the choir and just thinking about like how does this really apply to the world because Mm. a lot of teaching I certainly found at university was like very concept based this is information to know but I never found it that applicable to the human experience and my kind of mission was I took this mindfulness module and made it much more how does this apply to what you're doing each day and that was kind of the difference I created yeah So through your studies and through your mindfulness and the other practices that you engage in now, how has that impacted on your own mental health and your OCD tendencies, et cetera? What's it done for you personally? Yeah, the mindfulness has just been a complete game changer. I went to this module when I began it. I signed up for it, if I'm honest, because I thought that looks slightly more simple than the neuroscientific modules and the psychology and law and the more intense things I was studying. I thought mindfulness, that sounds pretty good. That could be of real value as I was entering my last year of uni. I went to it and sat down in silence for pretty much the first time, probably in about five years, because as someone that's grown up so interconnected with technology and iPhones and social media, Mm. I was very used to always having distraction. And I didn't even know that it was a thing that I was used to because it was just my norm. And then I sat down in this room to begin these mindfulness practices and actually found it seriously uncomfortable to just Mm. kind of sit there with nothing stimulating me and just listen to all this noise that was in my head. So at first I found it tough, 
And even to the point where I now told this lecturer about a year later that some of these meditations, I even would get my phone out when everyone shut their eyes because I'd be like, wow, I find this difficult to just sit in silence for 20 minutes and I just need the distraction. I then kind of pursued with it and continued with it. And in about three months later, I was feeling like this is a value to me. I'm beginning to understand what's going on in my head. It was really stimulating creativity for me, spending the time in silence and creating kind of some room for thoughts to actually come through. So I decided on August the 1st that year, that might be 2019 or 2018, something like that, that I would meditate every day and just keep at it and just not stop. And that's come all the way till now. And it's just so important to me. I feel like when I wake up, a good example is like a, a Monday morning. You wake up on a Monday morning and there's a lot in your head that needs to maybe be achieved that day, that week. You suddenly start thinking, goodness me. And often our first reaction is to kind of get to the computer, open the calendar and start thinking, how, how do I get through all this? How do I plan this out? And on a Monday morning, when I sit down for the mindfulness practice, I shut my eyes and there is loads of noise there. And there's things that want to be heard. There's things that need to get done this week. There's maybe a conversation that's happened in my relationship, whatever it may be. And in this space I have of 10 to 15 minutes on a Monday morning, all of those things that could come up and create stress for me that are going to begin on a Monday morning, have their opportunity to be heard and be spoken to and kind of move myself through them. Of course, in the mindfulness practices, you're trying to focus on your breath and the body and these things, mm -hmm. but inevitably thought comes in. And I basically found that that consistent process every morning of spending time in silence, allowing your mind to just say all the things to you that it wants to say, created transformation in the relationship I have with that voice in my head, creativity, as I mentioned, and my ability to focus, all these different aspects of work that have really massively uh, impacted how I'm now navigating what I'm doing. Brilliant. I, I love that, um, TJ. And I went on a, a retreat back in 2018 and oh. really started meditating seriously. And now, just like you, every single morning, the first thing I do when I've woken up is I meditate because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when we're sleeping, the brain's really active. You know, it's yeah. got lots of work to do when we're sleeping and therefore to you know, go from sleep to jumping into your busy to-do list, the brain doesn't get a chance to transition. So and, true. You know, you just take that bit of time and you start the day feeling so much more centered, so much more grounded, and it just makes everything else flow, doesn't it? It does. And it's one of the, mindfulness is one of those things where no matter how much teaching I do on it, no matter how many sessions I teach, I can only really guide people to just kind of consider doing it themselves and do it for five days in a row, even if it's a few minutes each day. And yes. just observe your own experience and see if any, any kind of changes begin to occur because mm. it's a very subjective thing sitting in silence, but I think there's value in it for everyone. Yes. Yes. And so on this same vein, um, TJ, some of the things I've been I've been reading about you is that you you like to help people navigate challenging emotional experiences and you like to help people to learn to communicate with themselves. So can you expand a little bit on that, please? Yeah, definitely. That's a, a big area. I definitely think we do experience a lot of emotional difficulty in our lives whether it's big events or just kind of the consistent stress of the modern world with everything that goes on in it 
But I do really believe that we need kind of a, a set process of how we respond to emotional difficulty. And the way in which I really work with that, and I'll come on to the, the kind of communication with yourself, they tie together. But the way I help people to understand it is our body is obviously evolutionarily developed. It kind of was built over these hundreds of thousands of years wandering around out there. And I think if we understand what actually is happening, when you're suddenly entering stress, you're overwhelmed with your work, you get some bad news and emotional difficulty begins to arise in your system. I think if you're empowered with the skill to know what is going on in your body physiologically with things like cortisol, the stress hormone, what's going on with your heart, what's going on in your thinking, why your thinking is going quicker. I think if you understand these processes, you develop this ability to, and you kind of open a window of opportunity to respond with intention, whether that's beginning with kind of an intentional deep breathing pattern that stimulates that parasympathetic, that calming system mm. in our body. I really, really believe that when emotional difficulty arises, we must take distraction away from us. We must leave the technology, the phones in those moments, because one of the great difficulties in our modern world is when things are getting difficult for us, when we're feeling uncomfortable in our experience, we often now just think, well, I'll just pick up the phone or I'll throw myself into my work. And we don't actually deal with the emotion that's arising. Mm. And one of the things I think is most important is that when emotion difficulty sets in, you start, you kind of take yourself away and you begin thinking, how can I communicate with myself in a way that's going to really support my mind? What behaviors is my body guiding me to do in this moment? Do I need to take deep breaths? Do I need to step outside? Do I need to go do something? Do I need to journal? But if you kind of begin to create a relationship with emotion whereby you respond with intention each time, mm. I think it massively reduces how long it lasts and actually begins to reduce how often these difficult moments arise. Mm. In terms of the communication with yourself, that is one of the most foundational pillars, I believe, of mental health because we all have this voice in our head that chats away to us and can be pretty challenging that voice it can criticize and judge our behavior our appearance our work our health how much exercise we do and we can have that real niggle in our mind especially in this comparative society we now live in fueled by these this media that we have and i really believe taking time in silence is one of the most essential things you can do not even mindfulness just time in silence i think it's something the human mind requires and one of the main things I did to change that voice in my mind and begin to create a relationship with it whereby me and that thing in my head work as a team and we're trying to kind of navigate it together rather than some kind of critical, annoying best friend that's in there judging you mm. is taking time in the nature, as we mentioned before, before in silence. And when I first started doing this, going for like long walks in nature without my phone, I found it so unusual i was like oh what am i going to entertain my mind with what do i need music do i need a podcast and i began to find that the more time i just spent me and my mind the better relationship i could basically create with it just like if you're trying to create a relationship with anyone whether it's an intimate partner or a friend you have to spend time with them talking to them listening to them sharing your thoughts with them and i really believe with self-talk we need to do that with our own heads and spend a lot more time just conversing with them yeah Brilliant answer. A um, few things coming up for me there. It, funny enough, um, in the mornings, I, I will meditate. And then, like you mentioned, journaling, gratitude diary. When I'm doing the journaling, gratitude diary, 
I normally have some really fantastic meditation music playing in my mm. headphones. But recently, because the bird song has been so amazing, yeah. I haven't done that. I've just had the windows open and I've just had this wonderful morning bird song in my ears and really noticed it because I think bird song is one of those things that you can go for days and not notice. You have to kind of tune into it. 100%. And, yeah. And, and it's just such a wonderful way to start the day. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, during COVID, you know, we get out obviously lunchtime and just have a walk around and I'm like you, not listening to anything, just looking, looking at what's coming up in the garden, looking at the buds on the trees, watching the birds. And it's so much more enriching when you do that, isn't it? And it's just there. It is. It's just there. And it's, I think it's hardly surprising that we're having greater difficulty with our minds in this modern world. It's hardly surprising because we aren't really behaving how a human is actually evolutionarily designed to mm. navigate and wander around this planet. We're designed to spend tons of time outdoors, tons of time in sunshine, tons of time in the quiet, mm. tons of time eating and kind of resting and sleeping and we're not doing all of the things that this vehicle was designed to do so mm. it's not surprising if we spend all of our time interconnected with the machines always on the phones checking our email in the evening always having distraction the, the, the body and mind are going to say i'm not happy something's wrong i'm feeling anxious i'm feeling worried because it's the system trying to say to us something is off something is not right about your behavior so mm. yeah getting out into nature and just being a human being in nature I think is pretty essential for us. Yeah, and I love your video. And for, for, for the listeners, if you go on um, TJ's LinkedIn profile, there's a fantastic video about forest bathing. Mm. Um, and it really talks about the benefit of just being in nature. So do you want to just explain what forest bathing is for the, for the listeners, TJ? Yeah, definitely. Forest bathing is something I was very excited to stumble, stumble upon last year. And... Forest bathing is basically this practice that was built in Japan to begin supporting individuals that were navigating great emotional difficulty. Japan actually created this term called karoshi, which is these individuals that were really experiencing difficulty in their mind from the intensity of the urbanized city world, and they were leading them towards anxiety, depression, suicide. And Japan began thinking innovatively about wide-scale solutions that could support the many and not the few. So in order to get a therapist to everyone in Japan, it's a pretty populated place, and there was a great amount of people experiencing difficulty, they created this idea of forest bathing and literally just having individuals spend periods of time each day, kind of like a, a green prescription, which is what they're now doing in New Zealand. They have periods of time where you have to just be in a forest for an hour or two a day, and no therapist, no guidance, just a human in a forest. And they began seeing transformation in things like cortisol and stress hormones in the body and heart rate and blood pressure. Those kind of physiological things that create difficulty were becoming much more regulated. Many of them reported massive transformation in anger, frustration, anxiety. And then they also see big things like sleep and that kind of thing and immune system support. So basically unsurprisingly humans are actually really designed to wander around there because that's where this thing was built and the more time we can spend there the better i believe the health of our mind and body will be mm. and you mentioned that wonderful book the secret life of trees and yeah they're fascinating the way they interconnect and communicate with each other they're amazing 
So, you know, it's no wonder that we get so much energy just from being in a forest. And yeah, yeah, just love that. So, um, TJ, I know something <clears throat> that you've done some study and some work on is the impact of technology on mm. our mental health and our brains, etc. So could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, definitely. So I think this is definitely the the biggest conversation I'm having now. This is what I'm speaking about most in organizations because I feel many humans instinctively know that this tech is having an impact on us. It may mm. be one of the kind of big contributing factors to the comparative feeling that we're having against everyone else in the world with work and appearance and all those kind of things. I think it has a huge impact on overactivating our dopamine neurotransmitter so dopamine being our our motivation neurotransmitter and much of the modern world many of the things we do is really exacerbating the activation of dopamine and largely we're really underactivating things like serotonin our mood and oxytocin our connection and our love and one of the difficulties that the overactivation of dopamine presents is too much time on these phones, although it's addictive and it can be really easy to spend a lot of time on them. When we come off them, we can feel pretty demotivated and lethargic and not likely like we want to do much with our time. If anyone's ever spent 30 minutes scrolling your phone, when you put it down, you feel kind of dazed and you don't necessarily want to do anything else other than continue to search for that rewarding feeling of being on the phone. I also think it has a massive impact on sleep. Sleep problems are really booming in the world, unfortunately. And I think this overstimulation late at night and early on in the morning is really creating difficulty for the mind. So the tech is a big area I am exploring. And yes, yeah, sure, I can mention this recent experiment I've done, if that yeah, would be please do. good to hear. So I recently went down to Cornwall to see my brother to spend some time living in his camper van and going surfing and being a, a cool Cornwall kid rather than someone living near London. And when I was going down there, I was thinking it'd be great to take a break from technology for my own mind, because it's been easily the fastest six months of my life. And also because I thought it might stimulate some innovative thoughts and perspectives around this relationship that we have with the tech. So I basically did 10 days with out looking at my phone, social media, the internet. I did turn my phone on once each day to send my lovely girlfriend a voice note or a video note because I thought disappearing for 10 days is slightly unkind. <laughs> so I turned it on once a day. I would only see her WhatsApp. I'd send a voice note to her and then turn it back off. So I use the phone for nothing else. And I kind of went into that process with the motivating factor being the fear I have of the damage the technology is doing with the things that I've just mentioned. So I went in thinking, do we really need to be coming off of the technology? Do we need to be using it a lot less? And over the first kind of couple of days of this experiment, I found it actually really hard to be off the phone. I've been on a iPhone every single day since I was about 11 years old. So it's a massive proportion mm. of my life, seeing the internet, seeing social media. Mm. I've never not been on it. So it was unusual to suddenly have the first two days. I was like, it was almost like how someone could crave like a, a cigarette or an alcoholic drink. I felt like, where is that phone that could be in my hand? It just is, belongs there basically at some point in the day, despite being quite aware of the, the technology impact. And it was kind of making me feel nervous, not knowing 
what was going on, not knowing what's going on with my work, not knowing what's going on with my friends or social media or the internet. It was just kind of creating a nervous feeling in my body of being in the not knowing kind of experience. Mm -hmm. And that kind of moved through. I journaled the experience of that. And on day three and kind of moving forward, it began to feel quite good being off the phones. And I found I was very immersed in what I was doing each day because like many people talk about this whole day idea of being in our present experience and the whole mindfulness idea of not getting lost in the future, not getting lost in the past. What I began to really observe is the phone is a massive vehicle that is taking us out of our present experience because every time I was sitting in a bar and my brother went to the toilet, for example. And in those moments, you could just pick up your phone and think, oh, what are people doing? People regularly do that. If you're in a restaurant and someone leaves a table, you often see a phone come out in that individual's hand. And like many instances of that, I just found I was just there, just being me, sitting there observing what was happening. And that was incredibly calming for the mind, that kind of coming off of that stimulating what's going on in the world, what's going on in the world. So that was pretty good. As it got towards the latter half and on day eight, I began having some new thoughts. And those were kind of based on the fact that although I had let go of the desire to scroll TikTok and Instagram and these kind of things, because that wasn't what I was seeking, there were aspects of the phone that I was really missing, whether it was the music, I love listening to music on the beach and I'm on holiday and that I couldn't do for my 10 days, but it was the experiment. Whether it was Google Maps, being a young person, I'm pretty incapable without Google Maps. <laughs> there was lots of different aspects, the utilities on the phone, the ability to connect with people. And it began stimulating this idea in my head that technology is really valuable. And there's many aspects of what the phones can do in our life that really can enhance the experience that we're having whether it's educating ourselves online, that was something I missed like crazy, being able to kind of jump into YouTube and learn some new information, something I do all the time. Connecting with people, utilizing the camera, the video camera, whatever it may be. There are aspects of it that are really, really useful. And rather than kind of coming back and thinking we all need to go off the phone, I think it's much more important we just start understanding what are we doing on the phone that's actually enhancing our experience of life? And what are we doing on it that is taking away and leading to us mindlessly scrolling online or comparing ourselves to others or sitting at a table in a restaurant scrolling the internet when they, we really need the human connection? And I've basically developed this idea of having a number of categories of what good technology usage looks like and create this concept whereby individuals will say to themselves the word tech check when they're on their phone and just ask themselves, what am I doing on my phone? And is it currently encompassed within a category that's actually helping my life? Is it doing something that's of use? Am I connecting with someone on FaceTime? Am I listening to some music? Am I learning something? Am I understanding my health better? And if you're not within one of those categories, could that be a trigger to yourself to guide yourself to come off the phone, go back to work, go for a walk, go and eat some food, go connect with someone so that we start utilizing the technology in an intentional way for what it really can do for humans and less of what it's maybe doing that's creating difficulty. I, might, I see my phone there as I'm talking. <laughs> so that's the idea I'm building out at the moment. Currently with these categories, like most of my program, I kind of sit down, I spend a lot of time in silence building out the categories. But I actually decided that for this, because with the phone, 
I can only go from my subjective experience of what I think is useful about it. So mm. if I built it out of just that, it would only be my idea. So instead, I'm asking everyone else to contribute what are you doing that's enhancing the experience you're having. And I'm mm. going to kind of build out a collective understanding of how we can use them in a way that's supporting us. Wonderful. Wow, that sounds an amazing um, offering for people. And just the very fact that you're going to make people more aware of what they're actually doing, because you're absolutely right. I do it myself. You know, my husband goes to the loo and we're at a restaurant and I'll immediately check my phone. It's automatic. Mm. You don't even think so about automatic. it. Um, and, you know, when, you know, at the start of COVID, when we we're all queuing for supermarkets, if people were there, well, we were on our own because we we're only allowed to shop on our own. Everybody in that queue was on their phone. 100%. They couldn't be. And, and it's something about as well, you know, part of it is I don't want to be seen to be on my own, not doing anything. It's almost like it's a companion. And therefore, oh. you know, like sitting in a restaurant, it feels really awkward just sitting and people might look at me and think, oh, you know, Billy, no mate. So let's yeah. pick up my phone and look like I'm busy, you know. So it goes a lot deeper than just picking up your phone, doesn't it? It does way deeper. And there's, as I say, there's so many things you can do on it that are really, really useful. Mm. But there's also, say for that, that simple example of being outside of the supermarket queuing up. Not only are you missing the, not you, but humans, missing the, the one kind of opportunity we had during lockdown to connect with others, yes. which was just, we all thought, oh, we have to ignore everyone. Even if we are at a distance, we need to just not talk as well. Mm. But likely what is on the phone, especially during COVID, is stressful things that create difficulty for our mind, where we're reading through all the chaos that's happening in the world. And I understand the news has its place and guides humans to do what we need to do, but if we're just constantly kind of interconnected and consuming all of this chaotic information, it's of course going to lead to mental health difficulties because mm -hmm. the brain's just like, wow, what is going on? There's so much stress in the world. So we really need to be able to check in with my, yourself and think, is what I'm looking at right now doing good for me or is it really just creating difficulty for my mind and body? And mm -hmm. I think that distinction and as the tech moves forward because it's only going to run faster and faster. There's going to be new devices that we begin interconnecting with. I think it's really important that whilst it's kind of at a manageable stage, we all collectively work to understand what does good usage look like so that we can feel pretty empowered as it goes a little bit crazier. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, one shocking statistic is the number of, of young people, particularly who are actually addicted their phone and, and gaming you know to an extent where they'll drop out of college they'll drop out of university and spend days and days and days just gaming just hiding from the world and stuck in front of the, their computer and, and you know so many centers now for for addiction to gaming which is frightening i know it's a a huge challenge for the young people because it's like a human experiment there's never been young people this interconnected mm. with the tech like i was i obviously am a young person and i would say i'm fairly addicted to the phone in the sense i do always look at it however i've been able to create a lot more balance and manage 10 days without it however with the young people no one's ever done this before it's a new concept and i was speaking to my 14 year old cousin recently and she went to the uh there's like a pond with like a little beach on nearby with her friends for the first time after COVID, a group of like 15 school friends, boys and girls that 
had been communicating the whole time through COVID and chatting away. And they got there and she said they didn't speak for about 40 minutes because none of them actually knew like how to interact with a human anymore. Not only were they not speaking, they were talking on the group chat about talking to each other on there, but not being able to human interconnect. Mm. And Mm. I think it's an area we really need to work on. I actually have just had a, a new young fantastic girl start as an, on an internship at my business and what we're going to be building out together is a, a kind of psychological profiling questionnaire for young people to understand what their relationship is like with their phone maybe why that's experiencing some kind of difficulty not in a the phones are so bad kind of way but why they might be feeling a bit worried and nervous in the experience they're having in their life and then it's going to kind of guide them to understand how could they just create a little bit more balance with what they're using because it's an area I, I really want to investigate deeper and deeper and start guiding these young, younger people of how they can use it in a better way. Yeah, that sounds amazing because, you know, again, going back to the restaurant scenario, it's so common now to see groups of people sitting at a table, you know, either having a meal or waiting for food and they're not communicating at all. They're all on their phone. And it's crazy. You come out to be with people and you spend the whole time on your phone or you take pictures of the group all together, post it on Facebook and then spend the rest of the lunchtime showing people what people have said about your picture. (laughs) So true. And kind of having that feeling of assessing whether it's getting likes and whether it's getting comments. And it's a it's a challenging process for humanity and something yeah Mm. we need a lot more talk on it i don't think there's even nearly enough i think it's so underestimated the impact it's having yeah i i I totally agree there and one thing i just wanted to pick up with you that piqued my interest was um that you 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 were talking about helping young women with their journey through cancer so what prompted that was did something happen that prompted you to start that Yeah. So when I was 17, my cousin who was in her 20s passed away from cancer and she was a beautiful girl named Vicky. And she uh, in in her name, my family began basically creating a a charity called Victoria's Promise, which is a a charity to support young women on their navigation through because Vic really thought she was going to get through that experience and decided during it that was going to be her life mission to support the other young girls that were going through it. Vic unfortunately didn't make it through, but they began building this charity that was supporting young women in, in a number of different ways, different to mental health, but kind of more about the physiological stuff and how they were navigating their lifestyles, their relationships, all of that kind of thing. And then when COVID hit, mental health and cancer began to become even more challenging because a lot of these women weren't able to get to appointments and appointments were being changed and a lot of stuff was being pushed back. And it was really challenging. And the charity were basically observing that that difficulty was being experienced. And they came to me saying, is there any way you could build some kind of mindfulness, mental health, holistic idea to begin teaching these ladies to understand how they're navigating that emotional difficulty their relationships, how they navigate those actually niche moments when they're going to the appointments and sitting in them because they're incredibly nerve-wracking the information they can discover. So that kind of laid the foundation for this program that I've now built. And that's just so magical to me that out of this situation that happened with Vicky, it's kind of created the foundation of this program that I'm now able to deliver to different people. 
Yeah, that is brilliant. And, you know, a common theme through many of my podcasts from adversity comes opportunity. And isn't that true? It's very often those tragic life circumstances that make us stop in our tracks and think, what can I do? How can I impact this? How can I turn this tragedy into something that's worthwhile for everybody else? Um, 100%. Yeah. I agree. So um, I just want you to share a little bit about WhiteCam because you're a director of WhiteCam, which is an amazing online platform. So tell us a little bit about it. What does it offer? Yeah, so WhiteCam, the reason we we connected and and it led to that role there is that they have a very similar perspective of mental health and well-being to myself, a really kind of holistic idea of it's not just one thing can can solve this challenge in the mind. It's a mixture of the movement, the self-care, the gut health, the mental health, the mindfulness. And when I saw that they were so aligned with this vision and perspective that I'm trying to create more of in the world, I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. And, And how that platform works is it's largely for organizations. Individuals can join the platform, but majority of the people on the platform are within organizations. And it basically gives them an account and it's almost like a, a live Netflix for mental health and well-being. So you can go on every day and you see a, a whole studio of opportunities of what kind of guidance you could have, all the live sessions about whether it's gut health or mindfulness or addiction, whatever it may be. And it kind of creates a, a one-stop space for individuals that are seeking to understand how their mind is working, understand how their body's working and begin that journey towards improving their health. Mm, wow wonderful fantastic yeah I love that um and then the other thing I wanted to ask you I know that you're incredibly busy you're working with a lot of organizations you have potentially a huge contract in the offing how are you going to deliver it how am I going as in how am I going to manage it or how do I actually deliver it yeah how are you going to how yeah how are you actually physically going to deliver that to that number of people yeah so What's interesting for me is I launched this business in COVID and this is, a, this is my first business out of university. And therefore, to me, this world of Zoom and teaching on Zoom is actually all I know, which is going to be weird when I look back on it, when I've kind of, I'm like a COVID baby into the workspace effectively. And therefore, I've become pretty attuned to delivering in this online format and have begun delivering to, to quite big groups of people. So Enchain, a, a fantastic blockchain company that I work as a consultant for, I deliver the, uh, the sessions to them with an audience of 150 each time I work with them. So with that new opportunity, we've got 1,200 people to train. I expect I'll do it in kind of maybe 12 groups of 100 is, is what I'm working with at the moment. And each session will be each session is an hour and it lasts for six weeks. So I can manage maybe four groups taking place per week. So that's like four hours per week with all the, the, the work either side of it. And I expect it will be a six month project and a lot of time working on my mind and giving myself the, the rest I need because it's a lot of talking out loud. So when I come off of the speeches I deliver, as I deliver more and more of them, I definitely give myself rest so my brain can slow down. Um, But as I said to you when when we spoke a number of months ago, I don't even feel like I'm 
having to kind of motivate myself or try and think, what am I doing? How can I get this done? My system, as I like to call it, is just guiding me along. And I'm just kind of sitting in this chair chatting away. And I'm very fortunate to have found something I've connected with so young in my life. And it's such a deep connection that it's just kind of happening for me. Wonderful. So you're fully in flow, obviously. And when you're working in flow, it doesn't feel like work. It's just a joy, isn't it? It is a joy. And mm. there's a, a big challenge that's facing our world. And whatever impact I can have, however, however small, I really am passionate about making that change. So the question I always ask all my guests is how are you becoming more significant in the world today? Yes. Yeah, so how am I becoming more significant? I would say the medium I'm utilizing to become more significant is definitely the world of video. Without mm -hmm. the video, I wouldn't have any of this opportunity because it was only once I began putting my perspective onto the internet that the organizations began contacting me. So I would say creating content, spending a lot of time in the quiet is having a huge impact on me being able to create these ideas because my whole life mission now is basically just thinking outside of the box of what we're all thinking so that it can start creating some significant change. So yeah, I would say how I'm becoming more significant, making a lot of content online and spending many, many hours chatting to, to groups of people talking about this new perspective of mental health. Wonderful. And the, the lovely thing I, I, I like about people becoming more significant, it's not just that you're becoming more significant, the people that you're working with and the lives that you're transforming then have a ripple effect yeah, true. within all the people that they know. And it's that it's that global impact that really, really excites me because, you know, we're limited in the number of people we personally can impact, but each of them can, yeah. can impact on so many people. And I love that vision of that ripple effect across the world. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, that's beautiful to imagine. I haven't thought of it like that, but that's very yeah. true. And yeah. I also always guide people at the end of my pro my sessions. I always do this intention setting process where people decide which kind of aspect are they going to take forward in their week ahead. Mm. And how I guide people to solidify that and make it happen is by trying to teach what they're going to do to someone else. So try and tell someone in their home, some family member, someone young, this is what I'm going to do for this week. And this is why. So I actually built that because I was trying to kind of make them more accountable with their idea, but that ripple effect may be occurring because the information is getting spread a bit wider. Absolutely, it will. And that that is a, a really good idea. I'm going to take that one from you. <laughs> Definitely take it. Programs and say, right now, go and tell somebody what you're going to do and why. Definitely. Fabulous. Get that ripple going. <laughs> so, TJ, I know that people are going to want to find out a bit more about you. They're certainly going to watch your, your videos after this. So how Amazing. can they find you? Yeah, so... TJ Power on LinkedIn and Instagram, the best places to find me. And then my YouTube channel is TJ Power 100. And the YouTube is my big mission. That's where I want my, all my content to be one day. Instagram and LinkedIn is where I've begun because they're where, they're where my audiences currently are. But yeah, I would say YouTube, the content will always be best there. TJ Power 100. Brilliant. Fantastic. And I will put all those links in the show notes. So um, as we come to the close of our, our interview, our conversation today, which could go on for a lot longer, <laughs> however, however um, have you got one last thought or insight that you would just like to leave with our listeners? 
Yeah, I think it would be open this conversation of your mental health up to others. If you are someone that experiences difficulty in your mind, whether you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed or worried about the experience you're having, open up that conversation. The moment I began sharing with my partner, my family, my friends, some of the difficulties I was having in my mind, the transformation begins to happen. And I think many of us live behind quite a closed door of our emotions. Opening that, that door of conversation begins the opportunity for not only yourself to understand your mental health better, but for everyone to have this as just a conversation that can happen day by day and a normality so we can get humans back to a better headspace. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Becoming More Significant podcast. And I really hope that you've taken away some practical steps to take right now to help you unlock more of that hidden potential that we are all only scratching the surface of. If you would like to discuss how I might be able to support you in your journey into greater significance, please get in touch it's calendly.com forward slash Sylvia Baldock for a no obligation free initial coaching call to find out how together we can make sure that the coming weeks and months are your most significant ever. Take care.